Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoit Street Podcast, my go-to source for the latest news and insight on state and local government in Maryland. Hello and welcome to the Condo Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Over the last few weeks, you've heard from two members of the MAKO policy team on the biggest issues heading into the 2023 legislative session. And as you all know, as the loyal listeners of the Condo Street Podcast know, our policy team has unique policy portfolios that cover everything from parks and rec, public safety, all the way to public education. And today we save the best for last. Don Butchko joins us today to talk housing, firefighters, methane, and more. Dominic, thank you so much for being here. Can you please just remind our listeners what exactly is in your policy portfolio? Uh, thanks, Kevin. Thrilled to be on the pod. And as I said a year ago, clearly you guys keep saving the best for last. So just very awesome to be here. Um, my portfolio includes economic development, EMS and firefighters, environment, intergover- intergovernmental relations, parks and recreation, planning and zoning, and transportation and public works. So nothing controversial or small at all there. <laughs> that's that's a lot of lively topics. And as as we've been you know mentioning to our listeners, the the Mako team has to cover an awful lot of ground. There are lots of different things that affect the services that counties deliver locally and all of our priorities and our local budgets and staff and employees and all that kind of stuff. So we divide up the universe into pieces. You've got a pretty big chunk and there's some interesting stuff going on in that portfolio. That's what we want to talk about today. So thanks for joining. I I would think like, let's start talking about climate issues and in particular a piece of that that's related to one of those essential local facilities our our, um, our our landfills and, and solid waste storage facilities. So walk us through some of the nuts and bolts on why we're thinking about landfills when we think about climate. Yeah, so the word of the day here is methane, and this has been a big issue in the past, and it's going to be a big issue going forward. So just to break this apart really quick, so during the 2022 session, we had the really big Climate Solutions Now bill, and a major portion of that bill had to do with, as you said, Michael, um, landfills. And so methane is a gas that emits off of waste as it starts to um, break down and, and everything. So interesting thing about methane, it's incredibly potent. It has a much shorter shelf life in the atmosphere compared to other greenhouse gases, but its impact is a lot more potent. And so this gas comes off of both landfills that are currently operational, but then also landfills that have been closed years ago. So where does that come in with counties? So counties are already at, already at the forefront with trying to deal with methane. Um, a lot of counties are actually putting solar installations and other methane mitigation on top of these, these active and former landfills. And so the Climate Solutions Now bill tried to really heighten those standards. Um, and we're already playing in this pool, and, and it would have had a lot of issues um, when trying to do like solar and, and current solar installations. So that provision was actually taken out due to the complexity of that nature of the issue. But um, MDE has since then taken up the mantle and is now moving forward with methane regulations for municipal solid waste. Yeah, the Maryland Department of the Environment, right? And, and obviously, um, methane is a big deal. Climate change, changing climate is a big deal. 
what is MDE's role now? What are they trying to accomplish? Where are they in the process? And are they planning to work with counties who, again, need to be at the table here because these are county facilities, many of them? Yeah. So one thing to know about methane and this entire conversation, this entire conversation isn't simple and it's not black and white. So where is MDE at right now? They are in the final stages of pushing forward these regulations. Um, back in October, counties were able to take a, a preliminary look at them, although I will say we didn't get the amount of time that we would have preferred, but we do have a copy. Um, the final step of the, of the regulation process is going to kick off sometime in either January or February, where MDE will put them out for the entire public to make comments. Um, counties will have a lot more time then to really give more substantive input, um, and we might actually have regulations out and finalized by maybe April or May. Um, but like I said, this isn't a black and white issue. Solar is involved. And so counties are we're at the table on this one. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a weird it's a different process for for people who are familiar with the General Assembly. And we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the state legislature as the venue where policy gets made. Right. You know, the House of Delegates, the Maryland Senate, they hash out these things. They have lots of public hearings on legislation, on you know, bills that are proposing to change the law in one way or another or whatnot. Um, and we think of that as being the venue where policy is made. In, in a lot of cases, the state legislature has given special authority to a state agency and saying, you're in charge of this area. You can promulgate regulations to carry out our general laws and vision. So that's basically what's going on here, right? This is the State Department of the Environment who has the authority to issue regulations they're going to say the, the, the new details for how Maryland law treats facilities that, that, that give away methane, right? You know, this is the old, we used to think of it as swamp gas, right? Um, but, you know, methane comes from various places, including landfills, and we're going to have new state standards for that. It goes through a review process through the legislature, but basically this is the state executive branch being able to write more detailed rules through those regulations. So it's a different process than a lot of folks are used to, but it's still a meaningful one for stakeholders like us. No doubt about it. And, Dom, I know that, you know, when it comes to methane, like you said, it it sort of stands out, but also it's really hard to measure, right? And it's really hard to tell where methane, you know, from where it's coming. And, And so I think this whole issue is fascinating particularly when you talk about methane and its relation uh, to county landfills. And, and Dom, last year's climate bill started out with a lot of different pieces. Some of them were amended out, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those are dead-end issues, right? Just like this bit of methane emissions off of our landfills, that one's still alive. And even though some of these issues were amended out of the bill, it doesn't mean that they're dead. They just may be in different hands or they're going in a different direction. No, that, Kevin, that's 100% correct. So, um, building standards were in last year's bill. Um, they did not go through, but we can definitely expect them to come again. Um, electrification, especially, uh, vehicle electrification. There was some legislation on that. We could definitely expect that to come up again. So just because it dies in the bill in a session doesn't mean the issue is dead overall. And, and on the environment side in particular, there's a ton of things that we've seen in the past that we are fully prepped and ready to see in this upcoming session. Yeah, I think the way we treat buildings here is one of those big items that's still TBA, right? If you're if you're a stakeholder, if you're a, a big fan of Maryland having an aggressive plan. 
to, to, to combat climate change and to be, to be ready for it and to reduce our contributions to it and so forth, that what, what we do about buildings is still kind of one, a, a meaningful piece to the puzzle. You, you mentioned building standards. Like I remember there was a little discussion about what should we do with school buildings? The, the state has a big state stake in, in, uh, in building and funding public school buildings. Do we need to even sort of uh, raise the bar for the already pretty aggressive standards for school buildings that was discussed and kind of set aside during last year's debate, as I recall, but I'm, I'm remembering another debate about buildings and that was making buildings sort of electric ready um, as a tool to say, let's make sure that the next wave of Maryland infrastructure, whether it's public or private is able to access the electric power grid where it's easier for us to plug in clean energy sources, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. So the biggest issue for electrification is like, if we, first of all, a few things, if we wanted to electrify everything today, we couldn't, we just don't generate enough electricity. But the second biggest thing for electrification is, you know, where are those ions coming from? If we could electrify everything today, um, it not all of it would be coming from renewable resources. Um, let's look at Maryland, for example. It's a pretty interesting case. So I believe it's around like 60 to 70 percent of our electricity comes from nuclear, which is one site in Calvert County. And so as we're having this conversation about electrification, you know, we are um, majority renewable, especially if you include nuclear, but even like wind and solar do take up a bigger chunk compared to other states. But if we want to go full electric cars, everything, um, we're really going to have to increase that capacity. And it's a, it's a debate. Where are we going to put it? What trade-offs are we going to have? And local governments are really central to that conversation. Yeah. And I guess the idea of, you know, like the idea of vehicle fleets moving toward electric and that, that turns into, you need both the chicken and the egg there. You need the availability and affordability of the vehicles, but you also need to have the infrastructure for enough charging stations that people feel comfortable using an electric vehicle or a zero emission vehicle as their primary. So like, that's a big policy question, but on the buildings, I I guess there's the argument is if you continue to build buildings and you have them uh, with their, their sort of HVAC systems and so forth are run through natural gas or even old school, like home heating oil, then those are more difficult over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years to get them on the electric power grid and get them using what you might hope would be a growing renewable portfolio that feeds into our electricity supply. So this is all in the interest of advancing climate goals, but it turns into bricks and mortar stuff that affects not just building schools, but also like the uh, the next office building or the next economic development project in your neighborhood that the jobs are counting on. So this, you know, this does get complicated, but it's, 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 it's an interesting and rich policy area, I think. Yeah, no doubt about it. And you could go various ways on this one. Uh, I think it's fascinating that, you know, we talk about electrification, but we still have the stride program in Maryland and that program incentivizes natural gas companies to modernize their infrastructure by accelerating their repayment for that infrastructure. So that program is still going on. I know we've heard from natural gas companies who show up and testify that, you know, they are actively investing a lot of money in their aging infrastructure. So if we're going to do away with natural gas, you know, that becomes a problem. So that's interesting by itself. And then as we talk about electrification uh, for vehicles, 
you know, we also need to think about the way we fund transportation, right? We're going to have to find a new revenue source. We won't be able to rely on the gas tax. So a lot of intersection with, with climate issues and, and revenue and, and, and taxation. It's all fascinating. But as we talk about buildings, let's go ahead and take a break there. When we come back, we'll talk about building some more as we get into houses, which is also a pretty thorny and tricky issue. All that and more after the break. Nationwide is a proud platinum partner of the Maryland Association of Counties. Nationwide is a market leader in providing supplemental retirement savings programs for public employees. They have been serving public sector employees and their families for nearly 40 years. Their programs include 457B, 401A, and post-employment health plans, and are comprehensive, incorporating investment, education, and administrative service solutions for governmental employers. Visit www.nrs4u.com or contact Debbie Turner at turned11 at nationwide.com. Retirement representatives are registered representatives of Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA. Okay, welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and Dom Butchko. We ended our first segment talking a bit about building standards, but the building nearest and dearest to most of our hearts is indeed our own home. Policy around housing is in the news too, Dom, and it seems to be in the news a lot lately. Tell us about that. Yeah, so if the word of the day uh, before was methane, probably the word of the year or the word of the next five years is going to be housing. Um, if I can offer one prediction for the 2023 session and several years to come, housing is an issue that's here. Um, it's here to stay, and it is on the forefront of counties' minds. Um, to set up the conversation, there's a concern that there really isn't enough stock that is affordable or accessible to working families. So are there houses out there? Yes but can you afford to live in them and are they of a, a standard you would want to? And so how could we combat that? You know, what's the state's uh, role in that and, and what's the local government's role? So um, a few highlights. Uh, housing is a major, major issue for local governments, as I already said. Um, back in October, MAKO held a housing symposium. That fun fact actually sold out twice and we had to change the venue for it because it is just such a big deal to our local um, policymakers. Um, and it's primarily driven by planning and zoning policy, and that's primarily up to the local jurisdictions and the people that you elect in your local um, elections. But it's time to make sure that policy does meet current reality, and there are times when policy has to be amended. That's why we elect people and we have a robust policy process in the U.S. Um, counties already do review and revise zoning policies regularly, just like any other law. Um, and many jurisdictions are already working to adjust their policies and they're trying innovative solutions. Um, one of my favorite things, you know, for the listeners who don't know this, I, I'm a Pennsylvania boy. I'm not from Maryland. But one of my most favorite things about the Maryland system is that it really is America in miniature and the robust policy solution system that we have with the counties. You have 24 different solutions, 24 different experts approaching this issue differently. And Housing is one of the issues that we are really tinkering with and experimenting with, and, and we will solve. Um, and what works in one community will not work in another community. And Maryland is built for that. And, and that's just awesome. Um, so, yeah. And that, it makes sense. I mean, my, Michael, there is no silver bullet here. There's no one single silver bullet to solve this crisis. And, Michael, you know, you've been around for a long time. 
Uh, you've seen your your share of crises, and we've seen issues in housing before and affordability. I think Dom's right on the money when he says that, look, one size fits all does not work here. And I think that is because there is no singular solution. There are a lot of issues when it comes to housing. And I, I don't think there's one single way to fix the problem, not just in Maryland, but across the country. Yeah, I think this is it, it's it sounds like a cop out to say that a problem is complicated, but this one is genuinely really complicated. There are a bunch of moving moving parts here. I over the last few weeks, we've had a chance to see new elected officials take office in a number of our counties. And, you know, some of them do like swearing in ceremonies and give a statement for the new county commissioners or for a new county executive or, or whomever. And like challenges with housing, it, not 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 just like the public sector and, well, you know, what does the county own or so forth, but just this is something our community is worried about or you know, we're, we're, we're frustrated about the state of the market, you know, the private market for real estate. This is a topic that's on a lot of people's minds. And, you know, part of this is sort of planning and zoning. And I think some jurisdictions in Maryland and in other parts of the United States, like this is not just a Maryland issue. This is a, a national issue. But in other parts of the country, some places are looking at standards for for parking as as a condition for building and is that something that we should rethink and and uh, either you know, get rid of or adjust or abolish or whatever um, I, there's a number of components like that that are truly in the hands of local governments but i mean there are other pieces to what's going on here that have very little to do with planning and zoning or the government itself it's just the functioning of the marketplace and like among the most obvious on my mind is, you know, the last several months we've seen a pretty rapid spike in 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 the interest rates that affect people's ability to afford a mortgage. So buying a home is a different proposition today than it was ten months or sixty months ago. So you know that that's that's a component of this too. Housing affordability is to some degree driven by a private market and driven by the ability, you know, sort of the cost of money. Most of us borrow to buy a home and that prospect has become a different proposition than it was even just, you know, even just a number of months ago. Absolutely. And I mean, there are other market pressures. Of course, rent is also high and has been going up. And we've also seen, I think is, is sort of a, um, a worrying trend is, is this idea with hedge funds coming in to the build to rent market. And so they're dumping billions of dollars into buying or building and, and buying up multi-unit uh, housing. And then, you know, they become the landlord and sure that puts more units on the market, but it also creates a, a situation where they are indeed choking the market because they own all of all of these units. And so that is concerning to me. And we've seen this trend play out uh, some preemption fights in other States, but we also know Dom that there are institutional investors just to they want to come in and, and buy up a, a an asset to rent it out maybe for an Airbnb to use that as some passive income. And so, you know, we see them actually building homes exclusively for that purpose. That has many issues. But again, it also creates a situation where you are uh, limiting the housing that is available. So a lot of issues here on the table, Dom, when it comes to housing and, uh, you know, this is you know, housing issues, zoning issues generally, very, very much about 
community. It's another topic that Mako's working on, and it goes right back to that sense of community, Dom. And so another topic that goes into the sense of community and that people are very passionate about at the local level, volunteer firefighters. And certainly we know that volunteer firefighters are a huge part of the fabric in counties, in local communities. And I want to transition to volunteer firefighters, Dom, and I want you to set this issue up. It's a recurring issue. This does not just pop up overnight, but it is something that Mako is putting a lot of shoulder into going into the next session. And go ahead and and, and set that up for us, Dom. Yeah, so this is probably the issue that I am singularly most passionate to work out about Mako, to work with with Mako. And um, I, I think it's one that everyone really needs to pay attention. And if there's anything on this podcast you're going to listen to, I think the next five minutes are are it. So let's set the table here. Um, firefighting in Maryland is very unique. So you have certain jurisdictions that primarily rely on volunteer firefighters. You have certain jurisdictions that primarily rely on career. And then you have jurisdictions that rely on a mix of both. Um, when we started doing research for this initiative, we were primarily looking at supporting that career column of firefighters. And what we were seeing is um, 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds, even in some cases, 80-year-olds were being asked to respond to fire calls. Now, that is just not a sustainable system. And we were seeing in, in certain areas, um, they just did not have the, the manpower to go and respond and do that emergency response that really we ask for when you call 911, you have a certain expectation and statewide, even nationally, we're getting to a point where we're not we might not be able to meet that expectation. And right. so. Yeah, I think I mean, you're, you're, you're right. This thing has been a squeeze over time and being able to meet that demand has been a, an increasing challenge. I mean, lying in the background, we've been doing the right thing and saying we want to make sure the people who respond to a fire call have training and have the background so they can handle the equipment. They know how to respond on site. But as you increase training requirements, it also is sort of a barrier to entry. And so it's harder for new people to walk in the door and say, I'd like to serve as a volunteer or I'd like to, you know, join, you know, maybe, maybe join a career, career um, force. Either way, it's, it's a tougher thing to get started doing. And that's, that, that's part of this, too. I'm not against training. I'm not against having folks being well-trained, but that just makes it a tougher ask. And even to go to, to go deeper than that, Michael, it's not only the training. When you think of, of what is a firefighter and you look at the demographic of that person, you know, communities and, and what it means to be a person and everything really has, has shifted dramatically. We don't see those major cultural touch points in towns anymore. So you had the church, you had the fire station, you had the potluck, you had the bazaar, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah, we really don't see those anymore. And that's been traditionally where we would recruit people from. And so as we were doing research into this, we, it was very clear volunteers were having an issue, but we were actually finding out that our career firefighters were also having an even tougher time of getting applications. So originally you would get a thousand applications for a class in the fire academy. And, um, now, you know, we would, now it's down to about 250 applications. And so you might be turning to me and saying like, Dom, let's say we have a class of 50. We're going from a thousand to 250. That's still a really big pool of people to draw from. But just like the military or the Marines, when you're going through the basics and you're teaching people and showing them what this job actually is, 
you know, a lot of those 250, you might be lucky to get 50 and hit that benchmark. You might be lucky to hit 25. So we're seeing this recruitment and retention problem just in emergency services being really, really expansive, and it needs to be addressed now. And that is why MAKO made this a priority. And so, Dom, what is the priority? What's the plan for the upcoming session? This is a MAKO initiative. So we will have a bill, correct? Yes. So we will have a bill, and this is a all-hands-on-deck, all-stakeholders effort. So everyone from the volunteer to the career to the education to the um, county employer side where, you know, you're running the fire department and, and everybody in between, all of the stakeholders are engaged and lined up behind this bill. And so what is our plan? So we see this as really a multi-year effort because it is just such a big undertaking. Um, we originally thought about doing a bill just to fix it all in the session. But we don't even really fully understand the full problem, uh, the extent of the problem and why it's happening. So we're going to do a study bill for 2023. Um, our hope is that this study bill will begin in the spring of 2023. And we're going to look at um, financial and non-financial recruitment and re- um, retention um, incentives and to figure out, you know, what could we do to fix that? Um, our study group is going to report by December 2023, and then going into the 2024 session, we hope to bring to the General Assembly a list of solutions that they can pick from and, and hopefully fix this problem for at least, a, you know, a few more decades, if not longer. Yeah. Yeah. It, a friend of mine who does who does work at, with state and local lobbying is, is really fond of saying that state legislators love it when there's peace in the valley. Right. So the idea of doing a commission and get all the stakeholders together in a structured way to pull together and come up with, all right, here are the seven things we all collectively agree on. Those can all go into a bill and then it's presented to the General Assembly sort of gift wrapped. Here it is. We've worked out our differences and our kinks and we think that this piece is going to work for this. And that piece will work for that. And we think it's going to target this problem. And it's going to overcome that hurdle. And we think we're all going to be in a better place and we're all behind this. I mean, if I'm a senator, I love that. That, oh, great. You know, we got everybody together and you all work this stuff out. That's, that's a great path toward a, a mutual resolution of these things that are like multi-year vexing issues. Kevin can speak firsthand about, you know, the, the process to get to next generation 911 felt very much the same, but from a legislative point of view, not everybody loves a task force, but the idea of let's get the ball rolling with all the stakeholders involved is sometimes a good way to, to ta- tackle these like big, complicated topics. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I'm a huge proponent uh, for this style, and really it's the only way to, to make a meaningful impact here. I mean, you have so many different stakeholders. There aren't really easy solutions here. Uh, I think a, a commission, a task force like this forces people to the table also, right? Like it, it makes you talk to other people that are interested in the policy issue. And so on this one, it's such a vexing issue. And to try and just put a bill in and work it out with all the proponents and opponents and people who want to make changes within a 90 day time frame is not feasible. So I really think this is the only way and we will have all the right people at the table. I love the effort. And as you said, Michael, from a legislator's perspective, this is exactly what they want to see. They want everyone to come in, kumbaya, everybody loves it. It's all been worked out behind the scenes and they don't need to worry about some lengthy process in terms of amending the bill and moving it and you're killing it, whatever the case may be, it's done. So Dom, I love the approach here and I think uh, it's prime for success 
and I think it's going to be a great initiative. Awesome. Now let's make it happen. All right. So, Dom, we got through a number of your issues. Anything else on your mind before we go ahead and wrap it up today? Um, I just have to say I am so excited to be in the middle of transition season. This is my first time doing this, and I love the palace gossip. Some of my friends are getting better jobs. Um, and it's it's just so exciting to see, and the energy in Annapolis is just second to none. So I, I love all of it right now. Yeah, the energy will also be present at the MAKO Winter Conference January 4th through the 6th. We also have a newly elected officials orientation on January 3rd. And I can tell you that conference, the attendance is already off the charts. We've broken records with just attendees. We have all the, the exhibits and booth staff. We're going to have legislators and county professionals, state, everybody that you can imagine that you need to talk to will be at this conference. So you can find more on our website. We'll also put a link there, but we will leave it there for today. We hope that you and your loved ones enjoy all of your favorite holiday traditions. And if you want to keep uh, following along with the pod, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. Make sure you subscribe so that all of these episodes get sent directly to the device of your choice. But for Dominic Butchko, Michael Sanderson, and our wonderful producer, Victoria Moss, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.